0: John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. I want to thank you for for joining me. Whether you are listening on radio on the Pacifica Network or catching us on Facebook Live, or if you're catching this as a podcast, which gets posted posted up immediately after the show, I greatly appreciate it. Look, I I do need for those of you who catch the show, however you catch it, to um, remember that part of this show is based on being a radio show, not just a podcast uh, or not just a Facebook live stream. So I ask that you support the Pacifica stations that you uh, perhaps listen to the show on or perhaps that you're familiar with. So even if you listen online, you know, listen as a podcast or on Facebook, uh, you still can support the Pacifica stations, uh, WBAI and WPFW that are are carrying the program. And a couple of other uh, Pacifica affiliates, I think, are are also broadcasting the show. And I think I even have a few other people who may be outside of the Pacifica network that that, uh, put the show up on their internet radio stations and the like. So, uh, look, do support these stations. They are costly to operate. And oftentimes, because they are more in the form of community radio than, say, public radio, uh, they're oftentimes underfunded. So I I greatly appreciate any of you supporting the uh, Pacifica stations that carry this program. All right. You know, there are days that I'm never sure what I'm going to quite talk about. And, you know, sometimes it's events uh, leading up to it, maybe even hours leading up to the program that I kind of shape what I'm going to talk about. That's why it's a little bit hard sometimes to, um, to promote the, <laughs> the subject matter. Um, but I, a couple of things I will do right out of the gate. I got to tell you that I, I finished reading um, the, the Peter DiRico book that I've mentioned on the program before. It's called Federal Anti-Indian Law. And uh, you know the, the the book is phenomenal. It is uh, it is I, I've described it as the book I've been waiting for. And but I have to say it's it's almost a companion book to Stephen Newcomb's uh, you know Pagans in the Promised Land. And 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 this book is it lays out the doctrine of Christian discovery, uh, how it comes to be, and really kind of begins to explain how it's impacted us. The difference in Peter DiRico's book, and that book is by Stephen Newcomb. And I've had Stephen on the show a bunch of times, uh, and I plan to have Peter on Peter DiRico on the program uh, soon. But Peter's book goes a little farther than, uh, than Newcomb's book. And what Peter's book does, what federal anti-Indian law does, it, it really breaks down the whole process of codifying the doctrine of discovery, creating this myth that they call the, uh, the Plenary Powers Doctrine, Uh, and, and, you know, then folds it into this, this other concept that we oftentimes hear about, uh, the federal trust responsibility that the federal government has towards native people. And it's all made up. And, and Dorico does a great job picking up where, where Steven, uh, left off in his book. And, uh, and I just think that, they're they're like companion books and and I'm I'm probably always going to refer to them in that way but but the one I'm clearly excited about right now is the one that I just finished reading from Peter Trrico. I encourage you to look for it. It's again it's Federal Anti-Indian Law: The Legal Entrapment of Indigenous Peoples and uh and it it's it's just that. It really kind of goes through how, you know, how we are not they, they always refer to us as the exception that they have the rule of law and then the exception to the rule of law is is how the United States has defined its relationship with Native peoples. But the reality is the the exception is so far off away from the Constitution or any notion of rule of law that you wonder, are we really the exception or is the exception the rule? And and you know one of the things that Peter Rico, uh, really asserts in his book is that the whole notion of U.S. sovereignty is born out of that doctrine of Christian discovery. Not so much the infringement on our sovereignty, but the establishment of theirs. And and, and I think that there's a difference there. And I think if you get a chance to read this book, uh, and I would encourage anybody to pick it up, um, because I'd like to have that conversation. I would like to engage people who not only who who, who have read the book But are really trying to formulate in their own minds, how do you use the information that is so clearly defined in, well, and frankly, in both books, but is, is so clearly defined and so far away from any of what people believe the United States represents, you know, freedom and equality and democracy and all that stuff. Because when it comes to native issues, it is much more authoritarian much more uh, based on old, you know, on church dogma and the monarchies and that kind of stuff, and really has nothing to do with rule of law. It, in fact, it is the antithesis of rule of law. So I wanted to first come on the program and talk about this this book, and and, and again, uh, set the stage for the time that I do get uh, Peter DiRico to join me on the program. We, and frankly, I don't know how we can cover um, what, so much of what I'd like to talk to him about uh, on a one-hour show, but eh, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it, I guess. So, as I said, sometimes it's the events that lead up to my program that kind of shape what I want to talk about. And and look, I've talked about what people are, have um, labeled pretendian uh, or pretendianism or whatever you want. This idea of of people posing as native people who aren't native people, and uh, and you know, of course, I break it right down to really down to identity theft. Part of the reason that I have been so passionate about the mascot issues, because the mascot issue is a classic example, not only of white people claiming our identity because of school mascots and the like, but oftentimes you will find people who claim to have native ancestry who fall into that camp of being pro-native mascot. And, And I encountered this but look, I, the work that I did led to the statewide ban here in, in in New York, um, and part of that was taking on my old high school. But it wasn't just about taking on my old high school. I had to take on old friends, and one of my dearest old friends, who and I actually my wife is his cousin, his first cousin. Um, one of my dearest friends, when well, he was in my wedding, we we grew up together essentially, was um, very pro native mascot. You know, I we went to school. For a period of time together before he, you know, I, I graduated from, from Cambridge Central School. Uh, my friend did not. Uh, he had gone and graduated from another school that also had a native mascot, by the way. Um, but so they called themselves the, the Cambridge Indians. And, and frankly, this guy, this friend of mine, this close friend of mine, loved being the token, you know, his family loved being the token Indians of Cambridge. And so when I'm taking on my old high school, I'm taking on my old friend and his kids, who are now grown. In fact, one of his sons uh, got voted onto the, the school board and tried to overturn the school board's resolution to retire the mascot. It turned into this whole debacle. Ultimately, it leads, ultimately it leads to the, uh, the Board of Regents for the State Education Department uh, banning uh, the use of native mascots. But what we see is in these battles is people who may very very well be native but are somewhat removed from native communities or um perhaps they have an you know, an axe to grind you know because of the relationship in the communities that they were from or or, or whatever and part of the, what they take on is this idea of standing with white people to represent you know a, a pro mascot stance there's an organization called the. Let me think. It's called the Native American Guardians Association. Now, this is also a group that is not necessarily native. I mean, some of the people that are part of this group uh, may very well be, may very well have native ancestry, but they're, some of the more vocal and some of the more active people in this group are not native at all. But they run around, um, and, and they they've really endeared themselves to the Washington football team. In fact, there's some threat that they're going to uh, boycott and and try to promote a boycott of the Washington football team unless they go back to calling themselves the Redskins. A racial slur, this group calling themselves a Native organization, which is not endorsed by any Native organization or Native nation. They're not endorsed by anybody except for possibly by some of these schools that have been embracing these, the use of Native mascots. But but so we, this is the challenge there are people who may very well have native ancestry who have aligned themselves in oftentimes in these conflicts that native people have with the opposition they li- align themselves with, with the white folks and you know i know that's a generalization but but it's it's kind of true so that's part of the issue but we also have and people who are familiar with elizabeth warren folks folks who have listed native Ancestry or some element of their background being native, because they can fulfill some diversity requirement, uh, you know, in a in a program or, or, or through scholarships or whatever else. We've seen it. We've seen authors who have used a claim uh, that they are native to to sell books and to and to pass themselves off as native people. But we also have another side of that debate, and the other side of the debate is that there are Native people who are not quote-unquote federally recognized. I'm going to tell you right now, I am Mohawk. I am Gunyagahaga. The United States does not recognize the Mohawk Nation. Let me say it again. The Interior Department, the United States, however you want to define it, the the entity within the federal government that lists who are the quote-unquote federally recognized tribes do not list the Mohawk Nation. They list the Saint Regis tribe of Mohawks, which isn't even who I'm necessarily associated with. I mean, in fact, they only threw the name Mohawk in the name. They were just the Saint Regis Saint Regis tribe. Now they're called the Saint Regis Mohawk tribe. And and look, and I'm not condemning those people. You know, I've got lots of friends who live in Aquasasni, who and many of whom have been a part of that government. In fact, I worked with some of them on the mascot issue, but. That is the only entity that the federal government recognizes. Now, that's not to say that they are the only Mohawks because I'm Mohawk uh, or Gunyagahaga. And there are Mohawk people that live on either side of that imaginary line called the U.S.-Canadian border. And even in Akwesasne, there are many people who live there who won't claim enrollment to the St. Regis Mohawk Tribe, they, they just won't do it. That's not how they want to be identified. They're oftentimes they're they're, they're longhouse people. They are not tied to this notion of the federally recognized or defined uh, native peoples. So as I see here today, and I'm not even from Akwesasne. I'm from I'm from Ganawage, which is on the Canadian side. But I won't be. A, I'm not a card carrying native person. I won't apply for an INAC or Indian. What is it? INAC card, Indian and Native Affairs, I think, or some something like that on the Canadian side, because I don't want I, I refuse to be identified or de- defined by the Canadian government or the U.S. government in terms of my indigeneity or my nativeness. But there are Native peoples who are not federally recognized that are clearly Native people, and I don't mean just because they they have some Native ancestry. Some, you know, I I I. I Think of the Tuscarora, for instance. There are Tuscarora who live in North Carolina who are not considerably considered federally recognized. Now, North Carolina in that area is where Tuscaroras originate from. Many Tuscaroras moved and they came and first lived amongst the Oneidas and then ultimately um, took up residency within uh, Seneca territory. And so now there is a native community that is, you know, that is a Tuscarora native community here in Western New York. In Western New York, we've got uh, the Seneca Nation, a couple of territories of the Seneca Nation. There's the, and then there's the Tonawanda Band of Senecas. Uh, and then there are the Tuscarora. So there, you know, there, there's a pretty good concentration of Native people here in what is considered the Western area of, of New York, although I don't consider us a part of New York. I've got to qualify that. Um, but, so there, there ends up being this debate. So the question is, when people have been removed, for whatever reason, whether it was a migration to save their save their identity, like in the case of the the, uh, the Tuscarora, or whether it's people who were removed through the removal process and the removal act of the United States. Is it reasonable to suggest that every one of them were removed and that there were no people who stayed behind? This is the, kind of the debate that exists in the New York area, in the New York City area. Are the, Did every Lenape Um, get pushed out of um, out of the New York area. There are some Lenape that uh, are some some that claim themselves call themselves the Ramapo Lenape Um, and others will dispute. Well, are they legitimate or not? So this idea of of identity and of of native identity, it gets complicated because the federal system of federal recognition, first off, (laughs) A federally recognized tribe is, and this is their definition, is a tribe band or nation of Indians subordinate to the laws of the United States. Well, I would suggest that of the almost 500 or plus um, tribes that are recognized by the federal government, the vast majority of them would reject that definition of themselves as being subordinate to the laws of the United States. Most of us, many of us, still maintain that we are sovereign nations that we are not subordinate to the laws of the United States, that we are not wards of the state. And, you know, that's some of what, what Peter DiRico covers in his, uh, in his book. This idea of redefining Native people through this Christian church dogma and through the, the racist um, white supremacy that the United States was, was built, up, built upon. That's how we end up in the situation that we're at. So our identities have been challenged. They've been challenged by federal government. They've been challenged by state government. They've been challenged by church. They've been challenged by by media. So it leaves many people, many Native people, uh, people with genuine Native ancestry, indifferent. I mean, 150 years of residential schools driving out, in fact, suggesting that Native identities were evil and that they were satanic and that the only way uh, we could really... Promote ourselves as human beings were to adopt their Christian faith. I mean, and, and that this isn't an exaggeration, this is truth. This is just the way it was. So, Native identities become challenged. We become, and people always talk about the, the diaspora, right? This, this idea of people who've had to leave an area. Well, Native people have oftentimes been forced off of their homelands. The residential school era took our children. Oftentimes, with no plan of those children ever going back to a native territory, because frankly, the territory's size and scale were greatly diminished during that period of time. Oftentimes, those kids that would be uh, ripped out from their families and sent to these residential schools would never go home. They would be adopted out to white families. And so this notion of our identity, of our national character, would be erased through this genocide that natives, that these nations, I'm sorry, these residential schools represented. So again, we've got all of these factors that challenge native identity. So today, as we sit here, we oftentimes can get into this, almost this rock throwing contest about us deciding who is who is native and who is not, who's real. and. You know, and and what I the position that I have to take is that I can't claim to be the arbiter of realness, you know, of Indianness. That's, I mean, it's not just a question of being beyond my pay grade. It's not my responsibility. If somebody comes to me and identifies themselves as native, I will take them at their word. I will engage them in a conversation so, in my own mind, I can kind of ascertain, well, are you native culturally or do you just have some native ancestry? And and look, if, if you genuinely have a grandparent who is native, but you've never lived in a native community or participated in any aspect of native culture or upbringing, that I'm not trying to diminish who your grandmother was, but that doesn't mean that you are a native person. It means that you have some ancestry. And you have every right to be proud of that ancestry, and and I don't want to take any of that away, but there is a difference between being a native person who is steeped in the culture, perhaps the language, uh, has native community um, that they are involved in, and has more of an identity based on uh, on that. So there is a difference. Now that's not to say that there aren't plenty. Of, like I said earlier, there are plenty of native people who are fairly self-deprecating and they would much rather fashion themselves uh, in the eyes of acceptance by white people. And that's why you have some you know some native people that you know will root for the redskins or the Indians or, or whoever else, even against what whether even against their own nations or their own relatives perhaps to, who are opposed to this this idea. But it, but it goes beyond that. sometimes we we oftentimes get into this this notion about, well, is native sovereignty really what we want? Do we really want that autonomy or are we better off just being Americans of native descent? So, so there's that too. So the reason I'm even bringing this thing, thing up, I got to tell you, there's a, there's a few things that I'm not that into. And I'm not saying this to condemn the practices, but I don't, I don't like parades, <laughs> Okay. And I don't like marching parades. Now, look, I know there's, there's gay pride parades and there's, you know, there's Thanksgiving day parades and, you know, and, and last year, um, there was a permit given for an indigenous people's parade in New York city. Um, I was going to have a few people on the program to talk about it, but we got preempted because of the state of the union address or some, something like that. I don't know. Some, some reason we were preempted. So, so that didn't happen. Now, I never had any plans of going to the parade. I don't like to march in parades. And frankly, it's not because I don't because I hate them necessarily or I think that they are meaningless. It's just that for me to make a trip to New York City, which doesn't come cheap for me or for anybody for that matter who doesn't live there, for me to go to New York just to be a face in the crowd, um, I would rather go and be a part of an event where I get a chance to speak and I get a chance to promote a message, not just, you know, be another native face in the crowd. So that's part of the reason I'm not not that into it. I'll tell you something else I'm not a big fan of. And and it's not to condemn them. I'm not a big fan of powwows. Part of the reason I'm not is because many of them have embraced this notion that in order to, I don't know, legitimize or, or somehow be more, I don't. I don't even know why, but many of them are touted as veterans powwows. Even the Seneca Nation, they have a powwow down uh, in in Salamanca on, on the Allegheny Territory, and it's the veterans powwow, the Seneca Nation veterans powwow. Well, I'm not a big fan of of our people enlisting in the armed forces of the United States or Canada to go oppress people around the world. I, I know people have different feelings about that too. So, so the idea of having powwows where you're going to put those people who have essentially committed their lives in some fashion to, uh, to serving in the U.S. or Canadian military, not a big fan. E- even back where, where I'm from, which is Mohawk territories of Kahnawake, of and uh, after the whole Oka crisis where we literally had a fight with, the, with Canada um, and the armed forces and everything, this last powwow, and I wasn't really sure if it was the the Gunazadage powwow or the uh, Gunnawage powwow, whichever one it was, they brought in Mark Miller, who is who is a federal, you know, Indian uh, affairs uh, minister of or something like that, and he's a white guy, and so the idea that that this is what these powwows are going to be used for is to promote non-native people or, or non-native issues like military. Uh, you know, and look, I think it's fine to have gatherings where people come together, and I think powwows in many ways have kind of lost whatever their original intent was. It's not really a Haudenosaunee thing, but you know, they're basically like like craft sales, you know, and and opportunities for native dancers to uh, to dance in competition. All right, well, that's that to me. That's not as traditional as uh, as somebody who dances in a longhouse, but so so these are the things that I'm not a big part of now. I will go to events, and and I'm not just going to an event to to protest or to rally. Although I've been to rallies, I'm look. I was a big part of, or I was a part. I won't say it was a big part, but I was a part of the of the climate march in New York City. And, and in fact, uh, Mimi Rosenberg uh, and myself, we we were we were on scene. We were right there at Columbus Circle, and we we broadcast uh, the the climate march uh, on on WBAI and perhaps some of the other channels, uh, Pacifica stations that carried it. So I'll, I'll participate in some of these things, but so in this, in this conversation about the parade and, and I mentioned that, that I don't have as much value. I don't have as much value as a face in the crowd as I do when I can speak on an event. And then I may go down to New York. In fact, there is some conversation about trying, uh, uh, my, uh, a friend, my friend, uh, Organizing an event around Indigenous Peoples Day to address um, truth before reconciliation relating to the residential school issues, and I'd love to speak on that issue. So I may go speak at an, an event um, in in New York, but I'm less thrilled about um, you know uh, you know about celebrating a parade. All right, and 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 that's not to condemn people who are thrilled about doing. It. I, I've got lots of friends who marched in the parade last time. Um, and there will probably be even more that'll do it next year. It'll probably be something that grows each year. And I'm not saying that I will never be there for it, but it would probably have to coincide with something else. Some other reason to go to New York other than to be a face in the crowd. So, but I got condemned a little bit for it. And then the debate over who's legitimately Lenape, um, since the parade is in the Lenape territory, um, and that's part of the reason I'm having the conversation today. So I, I think, you know, I, I do. I Again, I get back to this issue about so many of our people being removed from their homelands for, for a variety of reasons. And so when I think about New York, where the Lenape were driven out of their homelands, not sure if every single one of them were, but certainly if you look through Long Island, you, look, there's there's two native territories down there. But there were far more native peoples that were that had distinction other than the than the uh, um, the Chugs, uh, and the and the Shinnecocks. But that's all that's left: two relatively small communities in Long Island, out of the vast majority of uh, of native people who lived in that area. And in New York, there is no space in New York City that is specifically assigned. To, um, or protected or reserved or still claimed by, by Native peoples, other than uh, as, as a homeland, an ancestral homeland. Now, I will say that there is probably close to 100,000 Native people, indigenous people of some sort <laughs> that live in New York at any given time. Many of them may be, quote unquote, federally recognized. Many of them may be indigenous peoples from other parts of the world. Many of them are indigenous peoples from other parts of Turtle Island, who are either there for work or because they New York is a place to accomplish certain goals uh, set forth by indigenous people, or or just because it's where they found themselves. You know, they, they were raised that. You know, my, I've got family who went to New York to be high steel workers, and families that I knew that grew up in the city as a result of it still maintain their their connection back to to native territories, but that's. Another one of the factors that that changes the dynamic and in many ways can alter their identity of people uh, is when you start to um, minimize the, the community involvement of native people. Now, when we talk about the full native population in the United States, and there's some dispute on how many native people there really are. <laughs> According to the, the last census, the native population as, as determined by self-reporting on a census document, grew by 87% from 2010 to 2020. That's impossible. <laughs> so it's wrong. But what's happened is more and more people, I won't say necessarily non-Native people, but more and more people are claiming Native um, ancestry or, or identifying themselves as Native people than ever before. And there's been some studies on why that is. Some of it has to do with with this desire by white people to, um, you know, to feel that being um, distinct, being a minority, has its benefits. And so it's not so much that they want to write off their their white ancestry, but they like to put some concentration on on native ancestry if they got some, or if they have some family lore that suggests they do as per, you know, folks like Elizabeth Warren. Now, there are many people that I know who identify as Native people but will not necessarily, uh, that are not necessarily enrolled members of a tribe. Again, as I sit here today, I am Mohawk from Gunawaga, my family's from Kahnawake, but I am not, I would not consider myself an enrolled member of, uh, of you know, St. Regis Mohawk tribe or the, uh the band council of, of, of So there are certain things that, that throw some of that identity for others. Not, I mean, look, I have no question for me. You know, I don't have an identity crisis. Now, you know, I'm Mohawk. My wife's Oneida and I live in Seneca territory. None of those things are a conflict for me. <laughs> so, so I don't have an issue with. But others may. I and mean, you know, part of the debate, well, is that John Kane is he really Mohawk or is he Seneca? He lives in Seneca territory. Well, maybe his wife's Seneca. So everybody can start speculating. My wife's Oneida. I'm Mohawk, I live in Seneca territory. And and that's not a conflict. That for for me whatsoever. And it and it doesn't represent an identity conflict for me at all. I live in this territory, so I am adamantly um, involved in defending the Seneca people, because this is where I live. This is, my, this is the home that, I, that, I've, that I've chosen. But I've also defended uh, my wife's family, uh, my, my wife's nation, uh, you know, people of the Oneida nation. And of course, I have always been involved in, at least in my adult life, uh, specifically in defending um, the territory that my family's from, Guanawake and Akwesasne. In Akwesasne, I have worked with the longhouse up there, and in, and actually I've actually worked for the longhouse. I, I have been engaged to to help with produce documents and, and position papers and that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm not saying I was employed by them, but I worked for the um, uh, the folks of, the, of that longhouse. And I will still go up there at, at the drop of a hat if there's a conflict, if there's something that I can help out with. So and and i don't say that to you know for cred i'm not trying to you know you know prove myself here i'm just saying that that's part of my identity that's uh, that's part of who i am but i know this conflict that exists because it is a problem when people pose as native people who aren't because they misrepresent who we are not only as themselves but but generally when when all of a sudden you have you you have through the US census an 87% increase in people claiming to be native people you know that that's there's a problem that lies in there somewhere now i will say i highly doubt that any of the federal obligations that that come with 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 the history um i doubt that those federal obligations increased by 87% because of the last census you know they'll they'll use those numbers to fashion policy as they see fit, not necessarily let the m- numbers speak for themselves. And in this situation, those numbers don't speak for themselves because of the, the whole nature of what the census is. I mean, the reality is most native people I know won't even participate in the U.S. census. So the idea that that a census would would increase our our population, according to the census, by 87% is kind of bizarre because the more... We become sovereignty minded. Before we become more um, engaged in our identity and our autonomy, the less we participate in things like military and voting and census. So yeah, and, and of course, what I will say is if, if you a reading of the Constitution of the United States, clearly we were not a part of that. We were not a part of, you know their tax system, the apportionment of, of representation nor were, were we be, to be enumerated in their census. That's not, you know, we weren't a part of that. And, and so to say we are now being properly enumerated by the United States Census uh, Bureau is pretty inaccurate. Uh, so anyway, but I, I get back to this, to this question that, um, uh, that will always you know, rise to the surface because there are so many people that claimed to have a grandmother was a Cherokee princess or great grandmother or great great grandmother whatever else. I mean I I've, I've literally listened to people say that they're related to Pocahontas which is really really doubtful. Um, <laughs> uh, especially since Pocahontas didn't have any female heirs so it would be real difficult to you know to substantiate that that relationship. But but it's but there's so much that happens. And of course with this 23 and me and ancestry.com you get somebody who shows up one tenth of 1% native and they they'll use that to try to bolster whatever family lore there might be or, or make claims. You know, I, I get a lot of people who reach out to me who say, um, can you help me, um, uh, track my ancestry and, and get me enrolled for, for tribal benefits. And, and of course I don't do that. I mean, I wouldn't do that anyway, but I am not a pathway for people to, um, uh, to pursue what they believe are some tribal benefits by being enrolled in a federally recognized tribe. It's not what I do. It's just not what I do. Um, but I will say on this question of who decides you're real, I actually spoke at a conference at the uh, Arizona State University. Um, and the conference was, well, that's what it was um, called. It was called who, the Federal Acknowledgement System, Who Decides You're Real. And when I was invited to speak, I asked, you know, it was Judith Shapiro out of Washington, DC. She invited me and I said, you know, I'm against the whole system. And she says, well, that's kind of why I wanted you there. I wanted I wanted that perspective to be offered. And look, and I was well received there, but to stand in front of a bunch of people and say that um, the Mohawk nation is not federally recognized and that I'm not a part of a federally recognized tribe uh, or a member, for one thing, I wouldn't use membership anyway. Um, it just makes people question what well, well yeah but well, how do you do this? How do, how, you know, how do you exist? How do you exist as a native person in the absence of stuff? And well, it's not as difficult as people think. But there's a see, there's an overemphasis on being federally recognized, with less emphasis on what that means as far as the federal government's concerned. In 1934, they changed um, this notion of the definition of a native person. That's when they came up with this, a tribe, band, or nation of Indians subordinate to the laws of the United States. Because they knew that the 14th Amendment didn't apply apply to us. They knew when they passed a law in 1924 that tried to um, declare that all native people were citizens, that that didn't accomplish their goals. So in 1934, they tried to create this other definition. And even today, as we sit here, and I've mentioned this on previous programs, so I'm gonna mention it again, if you are a part of a native people who are trying to reclaim lost lands, and you're going to use what the federal government calls the fee to trust system, which is the idea of getting land placed in federal trust uh, as a land trust for your use and enjoyment. The federal government says, well, if you can't prove that you were under U.S. jurisdiction in 1934 when that Indian Reorganization Act was passed, uh, you don't qualify um, for reclaiming last land, lost land through the uh, the fee of trust process. So, it's actually a very modern, a today acknowledgement that in 1934, in spite of the Fourteenth Amendment, in spite of uh, the Indian Citizenship Act, and in spite of this definition of Native people, that clearly the United States is acknowledging even today that we that that we have not. Fully subjected ourselves to the jurisdiction of the United States. I would argue that it would be really hard for me to prove that I was under federal jurisdiction. Now I've been arrested and I got locked up and all that other stuff. I was in federal custody, but that's not the same thing as being under federal jurisdiction. That's you know that's being held against your will, which is a whole other issue. So, you know, so as I sit here today, I don't mind engaging in the conversation about identity theft or about the lack of somebody's ability to um, to prove their identity. You know, and, and, and that's for people who I think are legit um, or may be legit and people who aren't. I mean, I, I realize that there's, there's, there's... And I will not, I personally will not rely on the federal government or the state government or the state government, any state government to tell me who is... And isn't real. That's just not something that that I'm willing to submit to. I mean, it's it's this whole notion of power coming down from the top. You know, to say that the federal government can determine who is native and who isn't because of their recognition process. I mean, that that's an absurd proposition. Yet I'm going to tell you, oftentimes, and, and I've 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 seen documents produced where where nations have said. Um, uh, we are a federally recognized tribe or I am a you know, or I personally am a member of a federally recognized tribe like saying you weren't Seneca wasn't enough or se- saying that you were Seneca or Mohawk isn't enough you've got to use these these federal designations as a part of substantiating who you are which may or may not be accurate either so that's part of the problem that exists so I don't want my uh, Facebook pages, or um, even necessarily my show, to get bogged down into what I call a pretendian battleground, where where people want to fight over who is and isn't legitimate. Um, I've met people that identified themselves to me as native, and I believed them, uh, who got mired in some of these battles. Uh, I still know people who are engaged in this in this fight, both you know, the Ramapo, the Tuscarora, uh, and and people in different places. So, you know, and of course, we also, let me not forget that the, 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 uh, the slave trade and the Underground Railroad oftentimes began with the assistance of Native people. So the relationship between Black people and Native people has always been pretty strong. And so there was a lot of, and I, I don't even want to use the word race mixing, but there, there was a lot of relationship. In fact, Native women were oftentimes used as broodmares in the slave trade, in, in the chattel slavery industry. So there are plenty of um, black people who have substantial claims to Native ancestry. Now, they, may again, may not have been raised in the culture. So it's, it oftentimes is problematic from an identity standpoint. But I'm not going to suggest that that doesn't exist. I know as a fact that when people suggest that, uh, you know, that the underground railroad um, existed, you know, or just kind of came out of thin air, I know native people helped. Native people helped shelter and house and supply, uh, you know, people who were, or, you know, trying to uh, run for the freedom. So that's just a matter of fact. So I got to put that out there and, and, uh, you know, and that's why how we end up with the Jimi Hendrix and, and 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 other people that people may not be fully aware of that uh that have native ancestry. So anyway, I wanted to cover that. I know I didn't offer a whole lot of clarity. What I really offered up is is why it's anything but clear. So um, but it, it is I I am not, I feel like I'm not in the position to determine who is real and who isn't you know, and especially to broadcast it on my show or on uh, social media. I can make my own determinations when I meet somebody to get a sense for for how much nativeness, you know, how much um, their identity is tied to community and culture and how much of it is through family lore or maybe something where they spit in a tube and sent that off to a DNA place or something. I don't know. Um, look, I... I be. Um, I realized the show is winding down quickly. So I wanted to, a couple of things I wanted to mention. I, I want to offer my, both my condolences, my concern and my thoughts to the people of Maui uh, in, in uh, Hawaii. There, you know, for those who perhaps are not familiar, there's, um, again, climate change is is having its impact even on small island communities like uh, like the islands of Hawaii. And, um Brush fires have now taken uh, homes and, and people's lives. Uh, uh, last count, uh, you know, there's as many as 36 confirmed deaths. Uh, and, you know, and uh, you know, m- people immediately start thinking about tourism. Oh, how much is it going to hurt? Oh, I was going to go to Maui this year or whatever else. My concern, and, and I'm not saying I'm not concerned for for tourists who are who are trapped there, but my first and foremost concern are the people who live there, the the native people who live there, who are oftentimes going to bear the brunt. And have less support um, to overcome tragedies like this than, you know, fr- frankly, wealthy people who are going there for vacation. So, um, I wanted to offer my my thoughts to the to the people who are struggling. Um, and and as some of this thing fares out, I'll figure out what it is that I can do to help. Um, I don't know at this point. Um, I think a lot of the stuff is still kind of shaken out. The other thing I want to mention is um, the passing of Robbie Robertson. Now, Robbie Robertson was Mohawk from Six Nations. Uh, he was a phenomenal musician, for those of you who are familiar with the band and some of his solo work. Um, you know, one of the things I, I had done in New York was I screened the film Rumble, um, which is about uh, the title is, is from Link Ray's um, instrumental guitar um, solo that he did and became famous for it. Uh, ironically it is only this year that link Ray was inducted to the rock and roll hall of fame, um, in the same year that, you know, one of the guys who would feature prominently in the film rumble, uh, Robbie Robertson, uh, passed away. So, uh, I know that there have been premiums and I know, uh, I, I messaged Reggie t- today and said, man, I hope you'll do a, a profile on uh, Robbie Robertson. And, uh, and, and I kind of knew Reggie would anyway, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I immediately read uh, came to mind because I know he does this kind of thing. So, uh, you know, you, you, I thought of you immediately. Uh, I know. And- I know. That is so hilarious because I was just talking to my wife about that. And I was like, who's who texts me? And I'm like, uh, I said John is is calling me about Robbie Robertson. I'm like, yeah, I, I kinda figured that he was gonna reach out to me on that one. So I found that I guess we was on the same wavelength of sorts. Well, and I also know I didn't need to because I, cause <laughs> I, I you but I just wanted to let you know that when I see somebody like Robbie Robertson pass, um, I know this is the, You've profiled um, artists and and especially native artists in the past, and yeah, uh, yeah. And obviously, that'll be a full show. You got a lot to work with with, with uh, oh, uh, no robinson. doubt. It's going to so. be in a complete show. I mean, like you know, as one would think, um, you know, since we're talking about this, um, you would think that okay, Robbie robinson he was one of the co-creators, the co-founders of the band. are like, cool, all right, fine, but he had a prominent career. Before and after that, as well, too. So there's plenty of material. He also incorporated a lot of native issues and concepts, yes. and messaging in his uh, in his solo work uh, uh, more specifically. And and again, the role that he played, um, the prominent role he played in the movie Rumble. Um, mm-hmm. If you haven't seen it, you, I encourage people to see it. It'll it'll change how you view Highly not just rock and roll, but yeah. The role that Native people have played in uh, in music in general, and you know, and a lot of friends, you know, uh, Charlie Lowry, uh, Pura Faye, um, uh um, There are so many people that are in it. Robbie Robertson, obviously, uh, uh, Buffy St. marie Some of the people that I've had on my show, I've had the good fortune to have on my show, have, have been a part of this uh, of this this film, and um, and it teaches you a lot, and it also gives you some pretty good insight into. Into uh, Robbie Robertson because he's again featured prom- uh, prominently in the in the film. So I wanted to mention those those things. Um, again, I, I I can't tell people enough how much this book that I was talking about, uh, federal anti-Indian law. Um, how much I'm I'm going to be using this book a lot, and um, and I'm hoping that perhaps I can do some projects with with Peter DiRico, its author. Um, you know, look, Pagans in the Promised Land from Stephen Newcomb became a uh, a film, a documentary film. And when Sheldon Wolfchild, the the director, the producer of the film, when I remember being at an event in Washington with Peter Rico and Stephen Newcomb and uh, and Sheldon Wolfchild, and Sheldon said, "What do we do now? Now that we've made Pagans in the Promised Land into a film, what do we do now?" Well, I got to tell you, if if there's probably no book better suited to be become the next native documentary, the one that will address how we confront the the claim to power that the United States has asserted over native peoples and over native lands um, than this book. I, I, I would love to see this become either part of a documentary or a documentary uh, of its own. And again, the book is a, is a great companion book to Pagans in the Promised Land, and I would love to see a film become um, a, a companion to the uh, Doctor of Discovery film that Peter, or that uh, Stephen Newcomb and um, Sheldon Wolfchild uh, you know, co-produced. So uh, I look forward to that. So I, again, um, I was going to kind of have a bit of a mixed bag uh, show today anyway because there's, look, there's a tendency oftentimes that many of the issues that I talk about in this program are issues that I've talked about in the past, but new developments happened all the time and are, and are happening all the time. And I also realized that the same pers- person who's listening today may not have been who- somebody who was listening, you know, three months ago. So I don't mind plowing over the same dirt a little bit every once in a while and offering perhaps new insights. And, and I got to tell you, finishing up uh, Peter DiRico's book has given me some other insights. You know, I've talked in the, on this program a lot about si- what, I, what I call siloing, the idea that we look at native issues <clears throat> through a lens that has no context to the rest of, of um of American history or world history. One of the things that that DeRico talks about, and I've talked, you know, and and this this one case is featured prominently in Pagans in the Promised Land and in the uh Doctor of Discovery film. It's called the Teaton case, a case that went up to the Supreme Court. But what Peter DiRico did is he put it into context because Brown versus the Board of Education, he gets gets pushed through, I mean, the Supreme Court in 1954 and it undoes separate but equal. It, it it really addresses the racism that has been allowed to embed itself into federal law, codified into federal law. It addresses it. And oftentimes <clears throat> it's been viewed that the reason that uh, Thurgood Marshall was successful was because the climate was right. There was this fear that Places like the Soviet Union were was going to really single out and point out the the high level of racism that existed in the United States, and so part of the the court's response, and, and people are always talking about activist courts, the part of the court's response was to say, no, we've got to address this, and you know, so Plessy Ferguson and, and some of these other rulings in the past, they have to overturn it, they and and they did in in 1954, but the Tiaton case. Was a year later. It was the same court, and yet they did nothing but affirm the doctrine of Christian discovery, <clears throat> overt racism towards Native people, and that Tiaton case was specifically about uh, logging taking place on the Tongas uh, in the Tongas forest of the of the Tiaton uh, Tinglet, and the federal government says, no, we don't owe you any money. That land isn't yours. We claim that land through the doctrine of Christian discovery. So. You have no, we have no obligation to you. Even if it doesn't seem fair, it doesn't matter. We have no obligation to pay you for land, for resources taken from your land or or, or anything of of the like. So you have a case that addresses racism and then you have one that affirms racism and it's the difference between, you know, how, again, how black issues have been dealt with, civil rights, and how sovereignty issues have been dealt with with native people and putting it into that context. And that's why I'm, I'm grateful for the book. I, I never, I, you know, even though this is an issue that I talk about all the time, I failed to make, um, put Tiaton uh, into context, especially with, uh, with Brown versus the board of education. So these are things that I think are important. So I'm going to be util- utilizing some of the information in this book as I go forward with the narratives that I talk about here on this program. And and again, I will have Peter DeRico joining me soon. Um, and we may have to do a couple of shows with, with Peter. So um, um, I, I look forward to that. So I, I want to thank, thank you for listening to the program, uh, for bearing with me as I kind of dance around on, on uh, several issues oftentimes. Um, I know that... You're not hearing from me the same thing that you're going to hear uh, in other public forums and there's obviously not not a whole lot of native radio programs to listen to native perspectives but I try to uh, be upfront and provide factual basis for the um, for the views that I you know, that I express and for the the things that I take on and I confront so um, and I know oftentimes there's there's a tendency for people to try to go along to get along. And, you know, I, and I'm not trying to fight everybody, but I don't think that a lie becomes truth over time. And so that's part of the, the, the position that I take with a lot of these issues. And I think much of what the United States has claimed as it relates to Native people has been steeped in uh, not just half-truths, but outright lies and one of the biggest lies that, and look, we're, we're still told that the United States, part of the foundation of the United States was built on the separation of church and state. Well, you can't you can't convince me of that if you're going to say that the whole idea of, uh, of claiming this doctrine of Christian discovery and then equating white Christians from Europe laying their eyes on us with the same thing as conquest. If you're going to say, say that it's all tied to church and religion and and our heathenistic practices and primitive ways of life um, that make us somehow subordinate or inferior to, to white people, I'm sorry, you, you're gonna have to do better, a, a better job convincing me that there's been a, an adequate separation of church and state in the United States. Um, and, in, and, and if your argument is, well, that's not true church, well, it seems to be being, being held up in, uh, in the US Supreme Court. So whether it's true church or not, it's true, true enough to, uh, to affect law and policy in the United States. So I want to thank you for listening again. Uh, I want to encourage you to support the Pacifica Stations carrying this program. Um, and if you're listening online or as a podcast, still support the Pacifica Stations. This is a radio show um, first and a podcast second. So I want to thank you for uh, for listening to the program. And I look forward to uh, speaking with you more. This is John Cain. And this is is resistance radio, Yahweh.